Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. It's no secret that the environment that sustains all systems is in trouble. From climate change to ocean acidification to toxins in our air and water to the mass extinction event occurring as I speak, the scale is so big and the range of trouble so varied that developing workable solutions and policy has proven difficult and at times elusive. The Environmental Performance Index enters the conversation by providing a global picture of environmental conditions and policy. Known in short as the EPI, it is a global composite index that assesses how nations respond and manage the great environmental challenges of our time. It uses globally comparable data on everything from water and air quality, to climate and energy, to fisheries and forests, to paint a clear, normalized picture of the environment and environment, environmental policy of almost every nation on the planet. In fact, its coverage is almost total, capturing 178 countries, or 99% of the world's population, 98% of its landmass, and 97% of global GDP. The EPI is produced at Yale University by the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy and at Columbia University by the Center for International Earth Science Information Network. It is made in conjunction with the World Economic Forum and the Samuel Family Foundation. It was released on January 24th in Davos, Switzerland. I'm Jason Schwartz, researcher and editor of the 2014 EPI, and today I'm talking with Dr. Angel Shu, lead author of the EPI. Hi, oh. Angel. Hello, Jason. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for being here. You've devoted a lot of your time and sweat to this report, Angel, and you probably know it has, you probably know its findings better than anybody else. Um, can you give us a sense for the global picture that the EPI presents about the environment? Sure. The most value I see in the EPI is to provide a baseline or a global snapshot of how countries are performing on critical issues in the environment. You mentioned climate change, air quality, water quality, et cetera. And so it's a starting point for countries to be shocked or maybe not so surprised by their ranking and then to dig deeper into each level of the index. So starting from these high level environmental issues and then down to the specific indicators that are based on raw data that can then tell a country, am I performing well on reducing my carbon intensity of economic growth, for example? How are my water policies performing, et cetera? And so I think that that's the, the main value, the major value of the EPI. In terms of major takeaways from this latest edition, which I, just, I should mention is the 10th iteration of 15 years of work on environmental performance measurement. We see that there's an unevenness with which the world and governments are tackling environmental issues. For example, we see a lot of progress on increasing the proportion of the population that has access to clean drinking water and also improved sanitation. We're also reducing the number of children between the ages of one and five that are dying as a result of environmental pollution and other stresses. Um, but then at the same time, we see that the world is not tackling certain environmental issues with the same rigor and the same policy attention. So for example, the state of the world's fisheries is very serious. It's in stark decline. Also in terms of climate change, we see that countries that are developing emerging markets like China, India, Indonesia, Brazil, et cetera, they are not doing as well in terms of slowing the rate of, at which their carbon intensity increases over time. 
We're also saying that air quality is a very serious issue. And over the last decade, we see higher higher percentages of the global population that's being exposed to worse air pollution. Why is that? Why, why are we doing well in some issues and not so well in other issues? Why, for instance, child mortality and sanitation mm-hmm. um, versus air pollution? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And that question actually speaks to the way that we've structured the EPI. So we look at environmental performance in two areas. So one is the pressures placed on human health as a result of environmental pollution. So we call that objective environmental health. And the second is looking at ecosystem vitality, so looking at the effects of pollution on natural habitats and ecosystems, and also how well policies are doing to protect the vitality of our natural ecosystems. And so I think it's a general tendency of governments, once they begin to develop and realize that the environment is a very serious issue, to start to focus on the health-related outcomes and policies first to ensure that children are not dying by drinking unsafe water and that people are not breathing unhealthy air, for example. So I think it's a natural tendency for policies and governments to focus foremost on humans. And then, unfortunately, we see that natural ecosystems kind of take a back burner. What are those countries doing? Well, what is the global community doing to succeed with those public health sorts of initiatives that the environmental community is having trouble succeeding with uh, for particularly or specifically environmentally themed issues? I think that the rankings this year also reflect to a large extent how well countries are doing in terms of infrastructure to provide for improved sanitation and access to clean drinking water and also to develop um, technology and also policies to reduce air pollution or exposures to air pollution for people. And so I think that that is why you see a general strong increase and global improvement in these areas. But in terms of the natural habitats or our ecosystems, I think one of the greatest challenges is that many of those problems cannot be seen the way that environmental health outcomes can be seen. So you can see if people have asthma or the skies are smoggy or children are dying from diarrhea because they're drinking unsafe water. But how do we actually know that fish stocks are declining or that they're suffering or that climate change, for example, is a problem? Those those issues are a lot more difficult to tackle because it's a lot more difficult to see those issues play out. And I think that's also another value of the EPI is that we take data in order to make the invisible visible. And so we can place those issues on the policy agenda of decision makers at the national level so they can say, oh, I didn't realize that my country is doing so poorly on forest protection, and we're actually losing a lot more forested area than we are preserving it. And so we need to do something to, to tackle that issue. That's so interesting. So while the global community has plenty of structures in place to track uh, public health initiatives and the condi- and conditions surrounding public health, it's much more difficult to see certain conditions that are based solely in ecosystems. How, you say that the EPI is one way of sort of making sense of the noise of, of the environment, so mm-hmm. the, the largeness of it, the scale of it. How does it do that? I mean, how does a report like this take global data sets, for instance, or, or information that, are, that that's coming in from all, all over the world and make all of that noise, uh, make some sort of signal in that noise visible. 
I think that you have just named the million dollar question and the crux of the challenge and the difficulty with developing an index that ranks 178 countries. So this has been fine-tuned and developed with hundreds of scientists and experts, policymakers over the last 15 years. And so it's definitely not an exact science. I think a lot of people like to think that numbers and indices and metrics are hard and fast and that they're authoritative and completely objective. But the reality is, is that it's a very, I would say, subjective process because from where you even start in terms of the scope and the aim and the goal of a particular index, that from the very outset introduces some element of subjectivity. And so it's really, okay, what is the, what is the goal? And for us, we started this work at the time where there were really no measures for the environment at a global scale and at the national level. And so at that point, there was this charge for countries to achieve sustainable development, but there were no clear metrics for them to track progress towards these goals. And so we said we want to develop a measure similar to GDP is for socioeconomic development and economic growth. We want to develop something analogous for the environment. And so that's how we started with the EPI. And we really wanted it to be tracked and, I guess, relevant to policies. So we didn't want to look at um, issues that had more to do with natural endowments, for example. So a uh, desert country, for example, is very hard and very challenging for them to maintain vast quantities of freshwater resources, for example. And so trying well, they to... they don't have any Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So trying to gauge a country and to judge them based on, on that, a desert country based on that, would be very difficult. So then we said, okay, well, how can we look at gauging the policy performance um, the, uh, against of environmental policies that are comparable across as many countries as possible? And so, um, so that's that. That's the starting point, really. And we have fine-tuned what issues we look at, what indicators we use, and we always try to incorporate the most up-to-date science and the most relevant science into the in, into, into the index, so that it's relevant, but at the same time, scientifically and analytically rigorous for policymakers. So this is the tenth iteration of the EPI. Mm-hmm. You guys have been working on this for fifteen years. You say that you started at a time when there was nothing um, or very little, and now you are covering 99% of the world's population. That's what, right. What has changed? What, what kind of innovations have you ushered in? And to what extent, I guess, is, is the EPI responsible for the way that we're now measuring the environment on a global level as, a, as, a world, as the world community? Yeah. Well, I think there's actually a lot of optimism in that statement when, as you mentioned in your introduction, that the state of the world's environment is so bleak and there are a lot of depressing headlines to focus on. And uh, I think that we have seen a general trajectory over the last 20 years of uh, more attention being paid to the value of data and information and monitoring and better measurement, particularly for the environment. So I think that's the good news. And that's why we have seen measurable and achievable gains in access to drinking water, sanitation, reduction in child mortality. And also, I, I forgot to mention the picture of natural ecosystems is not all bleak. We do see some consistent improving trends in terms of protection of both terrestrial and marine habit- habitats. So it's not all gloom and doom in terms of the ecosystem story. So I think that that's, that's been one major change over the last 20 years is that because there have been there has been a lot more attention paid to environmental issues and the need for better data, we have seen um, the availability of data increase. And uh, just to, I guess, it put things a little bit into perspective, 
the first version of an index that we created, which was the Environmental Sustainability Index, only ranked 23 countries. Wow. And so from going from 23 to 178 and getting this truly global picture, I think that was always the aim, but we were never able to do that before because of these data gaps. And another thing that, we, that we've done, and we've really seen the role of the EPI evolve from previous iterations to 2014, is that we're no longer happy just taking a back seat and saying, we'll take whatever data are out there that are available, that countries are reporting. We say, okay, we're actually going to take the next step and try to actively shape the global policy agenda and to provide a blueprint to policymakers to say, these are the kinds of data that are needed to develop better indicators that are more actionable and more directly tied to policy. And so that's one thing that that we have done for 2014 that we didn't do in the past. So that can be seen in our air quality indicator and also for uh, a new indicator on wastewater treatment that is the first ever wastewater indicator of its kind. So I don't know if you want me to elaborate more into those Definitely, I, I will ask you to do that. Okay, but, sure. but 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 forgive me for being a bit of a layman here. Um, there's a lot of talk about indices and indicators, and I'm just going to bracket this conversation for a second and sure. ask you to describe what an indicator is. How is one developed? Where does the raw data come from? What does it look like when it's when it's all said and done? And how does it get involved? How is it involved in the making of policy? Yeah, so I don't think that's a lay question at all. Actually, I think that's a very nuanced and technical and expert question. So an indicator takes raw data and transforms it in some way in order to get a comparable signal across a a range of, of data. And so what we do is we take, as I mentioned, raw data and we, we establish some sort of high performance benchmark and a low performance benchmark to gauge the distance at which countries are from those benchmarks. And so in that way, we're able to normalize all of the data into a comparable 0 to 100 scale, with 100 indicating, like on a report card, for example, better scores and better performance, and the lower end being 0 or like a failing grade, for example. So in that way, we're able to consistently say to a country, your score is 65, and this is the range of scores on this one particular issue. So they can begin to get a relative understanding of how they're, how they're doing on that issue. And um, while I think, so we're getting into much more academic discussion about how we actually see the uptake in policy, and I have to be honest, I would say that that area, I think, is a very nascent and emerging area of academic research to understand how these indicators get taken up in the policy and the decision-making process. And so it's most clearly seen in the policy learning phase where governments or actors can establish certain goals related to policy and then use indicators to track whether or not they're achieving those goals. And if not, then they can go back and refine some sort of underlying conditions in order to meet those targets at a later point. And so that's that's the, the most clear, I think, pathway for indicators. But what I've seen in my time working on this project over the last six years is that countries, they they know what data they have and they know what challenges they have with respect to environment more or less. And I think that the EPI is really great in that it it's a conversation starter and it can be that platform for change. So countries, if they maybe don't necessarily have all the data put together, and in many cases we see that a lot of environment ministries and governments, planning commissions, for example, they don't have these data all laid out before them on a day-to-day base, basis, like as in a, in a dashboard where they can say, oh, I'm not doing so well on climate change and energy. Maybe I should invest some resources to focus in that area. And so that, that where, that's where the EPI comes in, is to really 
establish that baseline for them. And then they can also see how they compare to peers, either economic peers, geographic peers, or other types of um, comparisons. Interesting. I mean, that's it's interesting to think about all the different ways that, that an index like this can be read. I mean, you can read it for individual indicators. You can read it for larger stories. Exactly. You can read it for rankings. Um, the EPI has developed some new indicators mm-hmm. uh, in the 2014 report. Um, how are those – what are some – maybe we can choose one of them. You said sure. water, water – um, sanitation uh, um, or, uh, or, or you said – Wastewater uh, treatment. Wa- wastewater mm-hmm. treatment, excuse mm-hmm. me, or air pollution. Those, those are two that, that yes. are possible, possible discussion points. Can you describe what was missing from the larger um, kind of community that, uh, that the EPI tried to fill? Yes. How, yeah. how it went about um, developing those indicators and what the indicators look like now. What does the indicator say, for instance? Sure. So the gaps that we have seen over the last 15 years is that countries, if they do choose to report air quality data or data on water, for example, it can be there are no global established guidelines for how to do so. That's really remarkable to me. I just want to sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but that these are these are two of the kind of flagship mm-hmm. causes of the environment. You know, water, clean water, clean drinking water, or the 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 um, the kind of a major requirement for a life of all kinds, yes. yeah. and air pollution—the the very stuff that we breathe. I mean, these these are these are the driving forces behind the American environmental yeah. movement in large yeah. part too. Absolutely, yeah. I think I think you're absolutely right. The the Clean Air Act definitely a flagship piece of our environmental policy today, and now we're trying to use it to regulate carbon emissions. I mean, it's definitely a cornerstone. I would not say that the U.S. is necessarily the problem, even though we still do have many places, Salt Lake City, for example, Bakersfield, California, that suffer air pollution levels that maybe rival China on an average day. I wow. mean, it still it still happens where we do have instances of high air pollution in the United States. But that's not the, the – in terms of monitoring, it's not consistent across the world. So many developing countries, for example, don't yet measure fine particulate matter. So these are what are also known as PM2.5, really small particulates that can penetrate human lung and blood tissue and lead to instances of higher um, cardiovascular disease or lung cancer or other health complications. And what's really pernicious about this pollutant is that it's um, – very potent, and a lot of countries don't yet measure it. And so this is a very huge issue in China, particularly because they have these apocalyptic events and huge mm-hmm. spikes in air pollution. And what their government wasn't doing is they weren't being transparent about what these exposure levels were to its citizens. And so that's when Chinese took to the inter- internet and they started to use social media to try to have a conversation about what was needed in terms of measurement and monitoring. And then China, right away, they responded very quickly. And at the end of last year, they reported data for PM. 2.5 for 113 key environmental cities in China. So to me, that represents huge progress. But we still have many other countries, India, for example, that has just as bad, if not worse, air pollution than China, along with the rest of South Asia that we see in our index this year have very, very poor um, performance on air pollution. That's really so, remarkable considering, yeah. you know, you hear so much about Beijing's air pollution air pollution. Exactly. You, you see so many photographs of people riding scooters with, you know, yeah, with masks, masks on and exactly. crazy Im- crazy imagery of, of of the city enshrouded by a yellow smog, you mm-hmm. know. 
But to hear that there are cities that are do, that are as bad or even doing worse, um, or or to hear that there are whole regions that, that are doing as bad or even worse, and that the EPI is making that that kind of thing clear is, is exactly. gives a real sense for for what what role the right. uh, in, indices like the EPI can play in, in the larger environmental context. But just getting back to the original question, so yeah. okay, there's this gap. There there are these gaps in terms mm-hmm. of certain key environmental issues. How did you go about? Constructing an indicator, and and what does the indicator look like uh, for for? Why, why don't we take uh, outdoor air pollution as an example? Right. So we collaborated with researchers at Dalhousie University in Canada to develop a satellite-derived estimate of these ground-level exposures to fine particulate matter. And so this is where technology can really play a huge role in trying to drive governments towards more data-based decision making. And so without having a consistent global network of ground monitors, which are preferred because they provide better data of ground-level exposures where people experience air pollution. But in the absence of that, so I mentioned that China just recently moved, but that's only 113 cities, so that spatial coverage is still not complete. And we still have many parts of the world that in Africa, in Latin America, and also in Asia that still don't monitor PM2.5. So this is where the satellite data can help to fill in the gap. And so that's how we can then develop the indicator and know that China, for example, is performing the worst in terms of air pollution. India is right there next to China. And in many cases, as I mentioned, might even be worse in some parts. And so that that's how we develop the air indicator. Wow. Okay, so we have the indicators, and, and mm-hmm. it's important to look at the indicators both for how they how they become involved in rankings, but also what they say in and of themselves. But my sense is that when people look at the EPI, they're going to be looking first and probably for the most time on, at rankings. Um, can you tell us what the role of rankings are and what the difference in the kinds of stories that you can get from the rankings are compared to the kinds of in- stories that you can get in between the rankings, um, so to speak, or or within the rankings or outside the rankings even? So the rankings are probably one of the most controversial aspects of the EPI. We always hear from countries who are not happy with their ranks and they say, well, I don't understand why I was ranked here and my neighboring country that's very similar to me got this ranking. And they're very quick. I think critics are often very quick to dismiss the EPI because they don't believe in the ranking. And actually, in 2012, for that update, we thought about producing an EPI, and we didn't want to have any rankings at all, because we don't want the focus to be on that one number, that rank. We really want countries to dig into the various layers. It's like peeling apart an onion to the underlying data and to really evaluate and deliberate and question those underlying indicators and those raw data sets to try to spur improvement in conditions within their own countries. But what we quickly found in testing those kinds of messages and also the idea of removing the rankings from the EPI with expert policymakers, they said, well, nobody will pay attention to the EPI if you don't have those rankings. So for me, the rankings stand as an attention-grabbing tool to draw attention to the EPI. But then we include in the report and on our new website and in all of our materials that we want countries to focus on the underlying data as the foremost takeaway from the EPI and to have it not be the rankings. How are you getting people to, to do that, to, to, to say, okay, here are the rankings, but you know the rankings only say X, Y, and Z. How do you get people to move from the rankings to these larger stories that, that are, prob- are probably more indicative of environmental conditions and policy? Yeah, I think that's really the challenge. So 
when people speak with me and they send us emails or inquiries or try to get in contact with us, that's the message that I always promote and always talk about is that that ranking is just the, the first layer in that onion and that we really need to peel it apart. And I always try to caveat all of the uncertainties that we have in the EPI from that start from the from the very bottom, from what uncertainties are there in the underlying data. And I think that that's also the value of something like the EPI. So in the 15 years that we've been doing this, there have been a proliferation of other indices. There's the Happy Planet Index, the Ocean Health Index. The Human Development Index actually has been around longer than the EPI. But the other day, I saw another index for countries that are most friendly to foreigners, for example, hmm. and a sustainable apparel index that Walmart is trying to pr- produce. So these, these indicators and indices are just growing almost at an exponential rate. But I think the value of the EPI is that we're completely transparent about every component and every number that goes into the EPI. And so a person can go to our website, they can download all of the raw underlying data, they know exactly what statistical transformations we applied, they know about all the uncertainties that we're aware of in the data, and so at every step of the way, they can reproduce the EPI for themselves and get a different result if they want to tweak the rankings or change some of the targets, for example. Trying to capture and tell the story of data on the environment is ambitious. I mean, it's the environment is basically everything. Yes. And so, I mean, <laughs> big data doesn't even get at the, the size of, of, of the environment. But, of course, collecting data on the environment would be an enormous, massive, almost infinite task if you really wanted to get at fineness. So there's quite a, there's quite, it's quite a challenge to consistently and probably a challenge that the EPI is happy to, t- to take on to consistently collect better data and, and be involved in that monitoring question. I, I mean, one of the things that, that's been very helpful to me as a, as a, as a novice in this stuff is <clears throat> has been your focus and, and the EPI's focus on, on not just not just presenting the data, but telling the stories behind the data. And, and I think that something that we're going to see quite a bit and something that I'm quite excited to, to see uh, um, as, as the website launches and, and as people begin to play around with it is to what extent a kind of qualitative and narrative dis- depiction of what the EPI is doing is um, uh, is going to say to people and, and how it's going to speak to people and 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 I think that that one of the things that that I admire most about 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 this project this, thus far is not simply its transparency, which is admirable in and of itself, but also its its willingness to speak about what kind of stories are, are, are being told and, and also what kind of gaps exist and and where those gaps are you know. Um, the responsibility of the world community and where those gaps actually, frankly, are, are, are the responsibility of, of the people who are behind the EPI and the researchers who are doing the science in the EPI. Uh, there, there are gaps. You know, we, we recognize that, for instance, our agricultural sub- subsidies indicator does not tell an, a, a very holistic picture of, of, the agri- of agricultural sustainability out there. I mean, I mean, we sort of blanket depict um, input subsidies for agriculture as a negative and and rank countries based on the, the degree to which they're provi- providing subsidies to farmers. But that's not necessarily – that's such thing. a distant proxy fr- from actual agricultural sustainability. You might have quite a bit of input subsidies. doesn't necessarily mean that your, that your national farming policy or regime is, is – is 
all that bad. So, exactly. so um, you know, I, I guess a question going forward for me is: mm-hmm. we we know these stories, we 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 know that there are gaps, we know that there's trouble. What are some of the ones that you look forward to really tackling in the future? What are some of those gaps and some of those untold stories um, that you look forward to? Um, uh, to doing a better job on it, uh, both from from a policy perspective um, in the EPI, but also in terms of your ability to influence the the future of of research and 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 assessment. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you also again hit the nail on the head when people see a policy issue like water resources, for example, or agriculture. They automatically assume that we're measuring sustainability or environmental performance in a holistic way. And so I think that there is a challenge to that. I mean, I see newspaper headlines that say, oh, New Zealand is doing poorly on freshwater quality, according to the EPI. And I said, well, wait a second. In the last EPI, we didn't actually have any measure for freshwater quality. But they just see that water resources or water, and they assume that it means X, Y, and Z thing. Right. And so I, I think that's a challenge. And so hopefully people this year will take some time to really get to know what goes into the EPI, where we're measuring performance, where we're not, as, as you just mentioned, and then help us to, in the future, build better indicators and to point out to us where we think that there could be innovations made on both measurement, but also on the indicator development side. So I'm particularly looking forward to better measures, as you mentioned, of agricultural sustainability, because that's been a thorn, I think, in the EPI side for the last two iterations that I've been managing this project. We just have not been able to develop comparable measures of agricultural sustainability whatsoever. And so we've debated things like pesticide use and fertilizer use. But as you said, it's not clear cut. It's not that all pesticide use is bad. It's not that all fertilizer use is bad. I mean, there could, there are the sustainable thresholds of fertilizer use, and to blanketly establish a benchmark and say that all countries need to meet that benchmark, I think is just wrong, and I think also irresponsible. And so that's one area that I, I think could use a lot of um, collaboration and coming together of experts around the world to really think hard about what indicators would be good signals to provide decision makers for how their agricultural and food systems are functioning. And the good news is that this is a very hot issue right now in many parts of the world and also in the United States. So I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be able to invest and, and in the future see better indicators for agriculture. That being said, again, I keep mentioning water because as, as you also said, that's kind of the lifeblood, that's the sustenance and the basis of all life. And even though I think our wastewater treatment indicator that we custom developed this year will go a long way to trying to provide a signal to decision makers as to how they're treating wastewater from industrial, municipal, household sources before it gets flushed back into the environment and can have potential negative human health and ecosystem impacts, we can also develop measures of freshwater quality and also quantity as well. Those are huge challenges that we have tried to only scratch the surface of for the EPI, but in the future, I'm hoping that we'll be able to get better measures for water as well. That's 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 really, again, such an interesting depiction of what of what some of the the, the space is between between the EPI and and regular people. I mean, understanding food systems and understanding water better has you know obvious function for for policymakers, but but for those of us who also depend on on agricultural systems and the delivery of, of of clean drinking water it's really interesting to have a better grasp on the on the global story and 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 frankly on on the on the national systems that we depend on um 
because I mean, I think it, it can be somewhat difficult to look at a, look at a thing like the EPI and 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 parse what what its uses are for people other than policymakers. So clearly, there are interest. There's interest for regular people who depend on these systems. Do you, do you see other demographics or groups for whom the EPI might be useful or relevant? Yeah, absolutely. So going back to your point about what does the average person take away from the EPI? I think you're right in terms of just trying to understand how their country is performing. We all live in an environment, and so I think it's important for people's personal knowledge to understand how their country, their government is doing on these key environmental issues in relation to others. And in some cases, I I don't mean to pick on New Zealand, but I was recently there. And for one thing that they're doing is the citizens there and scientists there are using the the EPI to try to encourage and to try to push the government to do a better job on reporting and monitoring a lot of the issues that we cover in the EPI. So to me, that's a very exciting role that we see um, citizens playing and using the EPI is kind of a jumping off a springboard for governments to take more action. So we definitely see that. Um, I also th- see, and this is a new area that we hope to develop more research in and, and a better narrative on, is um, how businesses and the private sector might be able to use the EPI to understand both the associated risks and opportunities um, with, to operate for their for business operations. And so if a company, for example, wants to go into a country and develop operations, they might want to understand what the baseline environmental conditions are that could potentially pose risks or opportunities for their bottom line. So that that's that's one thing. And we have seen some interest on the part of the private sector and businesses to also um, develop environmental metrics as part of their operations. So for example, um, financial institutions and lending groups, they may want to know what the risks are associated with the environment um, in terms of a, a lending portfolio, for example. So the EPI could potentially, in the future, I think, help to inform some of those discussions. Well, you know, I think that the environmental community has complica- complicated relationships to, bit, to business and and that there can be a kind of knee-jerk, like, well, I, I don't want to be involved with business. We want to keep this pure, quote-unquote, um, in some way. But really, in the end, if we're going to solve these problems, it's going to be an all-hands-on-deck situation. I mean, so the benefits are mutual, right? I mean, business can be – business must be engaged – uh, if we're going to, if we're going to solve some of these problems, because frankly, uh, we're running out of time. Um, exactly. Um, okay. So, what are some of the more, what are some of the more fascinating, interesting, um, notable, even surprising uh, findings uh, that people might might be able to discover in the 2014 EPI? In the 2014 EPI, for the first time, we see an Asian country pop into the top 10. Singapore comes in at number four. And I think that that's very exciting and has a lot of salient lessons for other governments to perhaps adopt. So, for example, Singapore has a goal to recycle 70% of its waste, which I think is is very ambitious. Wow. And we also see that they score very high on wastewater treatment and it's largely due to a very efficient wastewater treatment system and infrastructure that they have in place. Um, at the same time, we see challenges that, that Singapore also faces, for example, in terms of natural habitat and ecosystem protection, simply because they're so small, they occupy a very small land area. So for them to have developed the infrastructure that can then provide for a healthy environment for its people, natural ecosystems suffer. So that, to me, is, is a surprise. Um, we also see that there are some countries that perform way above their 
predicted GDP growth. So Tonga, for example, um, which we have never included in the EPI, made the 2014 EPI, they perform far better than their other economic GDP peers within that group. And so you get some surprises like that. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, you see some sub-Saharan and um, developing countries that, that occupy the bottom. And that, I think, speaks largely to the fact that there are other more pressing development needs in these countries that don't allow them to focus as much attention on the environment. And many of these countries also face very unstable political institutions and um, different, so Haiti, for example, is in the bottom 10. And so obviously the natural disasters that have wreaked havoc in their country have been, um, have taken precedence over environmental protection, for example. Um, we also see that in terms of the emerging markets, so China, India, Brazil, South Africa, a lot of surprises. South Africa, for example, does much better in the 2014 rankings than they did in the 2012 rankings. They were in the, in the bottom 10 last time in the 2012. And now they're one of the top performing emerging market countries. And um, we also see India being quite low. So India is at 155 out of 178 countries, and China is at, at 118th. And so I think that disparity between China and India, which was not so great in the last ranking that we did, it, there's a huge, I think, gulf between China and India, which which is which was quite surprising to me. I mean, I think that, that that speaks to the fact that we live in extremely dynamic times, and that the pace of of growth and uh, I mean, growth of economies, growth of population, growth of industry, is is a really difficult thing to track. And a means, one of the means of tracking it, is probably going to be the, uh, uh, in parallel to tracking um, how well countries perform. Uh, uh, in relation to their environment. Uh, and uh, obviously, th- those things are going to, as environmental pressures become greater and greater, those things are going to have to be tracked in parallel, uh, growth and and environmental conditions. And so it's really interesting to see, you know, as you mentioned, um, India and China now have a, a bunch of separation between them yes. in terms of their rankings. It's interesting to see that separation and try to and be able to somehow investigate on your own through the research what the causes of that separation are. Yeah, absolutely. Angel, it has been very, very fun to talk with you today and and to hear your thoughts about the EPI. Thank you so much. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.